Hey everyone, welcome back to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week we will be talking about the economy, January 6th commission, and Ukraine. So this week we got more economic numbers that paint a similar economic picture to what we have already talked about uh, the last few months. When new applications for unemployment benefits were lower and remained near historically low levels, initial jobless claims fell by 18,000 to a seasonally adjusted 215,000 for the week ended February 26th. Non-farm payrolls rose, rose by 678,000 in February, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.8%. So just to give you some perspective, expectations for those uh, new jobs were 440,000. So 440,000 were the expected new jobs, and it ended up being 678,000. So a huge amount of more jobs were created than were initially expected. And then 3.9% unemployment rate was expected, and it was 3.8%. So this, like I said, paints a similar picture to what we have already talked about the last few months. Uh, the economy right now is booming. Okay, The labor market is still inc uh, incredibly tight. People are still struggling to find workers. And in terms of just economic recovery, uh, the economy really is taking off ever since uh, the vaccines and uh, COVID has started to wane more and more. With that said, though, um, that means we, we still uh, have uh, are faced with inflation. And so none of these numbers will really uh, help inflation in terms of making it go down. Okay, In fact, it'll probably do the opposite. The stronger the economy is, the tighter the labor market is, then the uh, the more inflation will increase, or at least uh, the less chance of it decreasing will happen. And so uh, as good as these numbers are, the important numbers are going to continue to be those inflation numbers because the economy can be booming, but if inflation and everything uh, cost more, then uh, it doesn't really matter unless uh, wages uh, outgrow inflation, and right now that hasn't happened. All right, now moving on to the January 6th commission. Uh, so the January 6th commission released some court documents that were catching some headlines this week. Um, I actually, to be honest with you, do not think this is that significant in terms of impacting everyday life. However, it has been all over the news, and I want to talk about it because uh, the way that it has been reported, uh, I believe, has been rather misleading. And so I just want to clarify exactly what is happening. So to give you some background, uh, John Eastman is a law professor and Claremont Institute scholar, uh, and John Eastman wrote a memo before January 6th to, um, that, that laid out a plan to delay the electoral counting, the, ele the, the votes of the electoral college counted. So if you remember back to uh, January 6th, we know that day because that was the day that um, people uh, invaded the, the Capitol or broke into the Capitol. Um, but that day, the reason that so many people were there is because they were counting the electoral votes. So the states uh, will hold their elections, will uh, count the votes in their individual states, will then count the electors, and then send the slate of electors to Congress in Washington, D.C. to be counted. And uh, John Eastman, before January 6th, wrote a memo on how to delay that process. Okay, Now, this was a, a completely bogus, 
unconstitutional by almost every measure scheme to delay the certification of the election results. Essentially, Eastman was claiming that Mike Pence had that power unilaterally, which is insane because that would also mean that uh, Kamala Harris in 2024 would have the power to essentially unilaterally declare that the uh, election results from different states didn't count. Now, what the January 6th committee did is they want a judge to review the communications between Eastman and Trump. Now, typically, uh, when you have a, an attorney-client relationship, uh, those communications are protected by the attorney-client privilege. Now, that would typically apply in normal cases, but the issue is, is Eastman, at least uh, according to the January 6th committee, was not acting as Trump's lawyer. In fact, there's no evidence. They were they were basically unable to produce evidence that Eastman was acting in a lawyerly uh, ca- capacity. Uh, so rather than being in an attorney-client relationship, uh, Eastman was essentially just a lawyer giving Trump, uh, you know, throwing ideas at Trump. Uh, and so, therefore, the January 6th committee is arguing those communications are not uh, are not privy to a, a attorney-client privilege and should be handed over to the January 6th committee. Now, what came out and why this is catching so many headlines is the January 6th committee wrote to a judge why that judge should review the communications. Okay, so essentially what they're asking is they're asking a judge to look at this, uh, these communications, review it, and then make their own uh, determinations whether it should go to the January 6th committee or not. Okay, so David French uh, is a lawyer, and he uh, compared this to asking a judge for a search warrant. Um, so, except it's a little bit tougher to uh, the the uh, standards are a little tougher to meet than a uh, a uh, search warrant, but it's kind of like that. They're asking the judge to review this these documents now. So they list all of these reasons why this uh, it, why the judge should review the communications and why it's not privy to attorney client privilege. And they list five different reasons for why that information should be handed over to them, and then they list as one of their last reasons that uh, that the judge, while reviewing the communications, that it was reasonable that they could find evidence of crimes committed. Okay, so they list all sorts of reasons. So the way that lawyers usually submit some sort of brief or something like this is that they always are going to list their best arguments first and then work their way down to one of their worst arguments. So in other words, they threw this argument in there that a reasonable person could, uh, it is reasonable to assume that evidence of crimes committed could be found as their worst argument. However, okay, the, uh, the, headlines all read that the January 6th committee was claiming that that crimes could have been committed by Trump. Okay, now, that very well could be the case. But again, it is important to remember that this is one of the last reasons that they gave for the judge reviewing the communications. And it's also important to note that the uh, standard, the bar to meet to get the judge to look at the uh, at the communications and then hand that over to the January 6th committee is significantly lower than the evidence needed in court to prove guilt. Okay, so again, going back to the search warrant example, okay, you can go to a judge with 
um, evidence, a reasonable suspicion that you will discover uh, crimes committed or evidence that crimes were committed. But usually that evidence that you present to the judge isn't wouldn't hold up enough in court. It wouldn't be enough in court. Hence why you need a search warrant to sometimes get more evidence. And so they are saying that it would be reasonable to assume that uh, this could be found, that crimes committed could be found. But again, that is a lower bar than them saying they have evidence of crimes committed. And so at the end of the day, the committee will likely get access to these communications, but it's not going to be because there were potentially crimes committed. Rather, it's probably going to be because this attorney-client privilege wasn't uh, really a thing since Eastman wasn't acting in an attorney role with Donald Trump. And so I just want to clear that up because, like I said, it has been all over the news and it's been reported as if Donald Trump, uh, there's evidence that he uh, committed crimes, which, again, he may have, but that doesn't mean that there's evidence for it and we don't have that evidence yet. And just to clarify, the uh, the possible crimes there that they list that could have been uh, committed was essentially uh, a conspiracy to overthrow the um, the uh, elections or commit election fraud. Essentially, so that would be the, those would be the potential crimes that they listed that could be found in these communications. And then I want to mention that uh, President Biden announced his. Uh, Supreme Court nominee to replace Justice Breyer last week. So this was announced again last week, but I didn't talk about it because I, of the a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But he announced that Katanji Brown Jackson would be uh, the nominee. Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson was uh, the front runner and had been the front runner. I mentioned her back when Justice Breyer retiring came out. Um, and this week, Senate Democrats have scheduled her confirmation hearings to begin less than three weeks from now, aiming to confirm her through the Senate by early April before Easter. So just to remind you uh, that Katanji Brown Jackson uh, is immensely qualified. She is a Harvard undergrad and law school, clerked for Justice Breyer at the Supreme Court. She was on the Sentencing Commission, then was on the District Court, I believe, and then now uh, is at the D.C. Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, largely seen as kind of the training ground for the Supreme Court. I mention that because there's going to be, uh, con- you know, that constant, uh, quote-unquote, doubt because uh, Joe Biden limited his uh, search to uh, a black female, and uh, it is just important to note that she is immensely qualified. She would be immensely qualified regardless of whether uh, Joe Biden uh, limited his criteria that way. Again, I said at the time that I hated that he did that because there would always be this potential doubt that maybe she's not really qualified, but uh, she is really qualified now. With that said, that doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with her decisions, okay? That doesn't mean that I would even... Uh, uh, confirm her if I was in the Senate. Uh, I I haven't you know I haven't delved deeply into her views, but I am assuming that she is a progressive because she is replacing a progressive in Justice Breyer. So I disagree with the progressive view of constitutional law and the way that they interpret the Constitution. So because of that, I don't think I will probably agree with many of her decisions, and I will probably criticize her decisions. Um, And I just want to go ahead and get out ahead of this and say that that is not because I am racist. It is not because she is a black female. It is because I disagree with her interpretation of the Constitution. 
Okay, you can disagree about important things so much so that you wouldn't confirm someone and still think they were immensely qualified. So I think she's immensely qualified, especially if I am a progressive. Uh, I would be thrilled. I would think she was great. I would think she would be perfect for the job. And in terms of the balance of the court, she is basically a progressive replacing another progressive. Again, I haven't delved that deeply into her rulings, um, but that is my assumption. And so in terms of balance of the court, it's not going to be that drastic. And in fact, this uh, Supreme Court co confirmation could really be one of the uh, less eventful uh, Supreme Court nominees maybe in my lifetime. It's just going to be, uh, hopefully, uh, there won't be many curveballs, won't be too uh, hostile, and she can join the court. And uh, if I'm lucky, maybe uh, Clarence Thomas can convince her that he's right uh, instead of her other progressive colleagues there. And then finally, I do want to, I guess, mention this uh, State of the Union uh, was this week. I did not listen to the State of the Union, did not watch the State of the Union. I don't like the State of the Union. I think the State of the Union is too monarchical. I think it is too like a, like the president, it treats the president as if he is a king, um, as if he uh, is making pronouncements, as if uh, he has all the power and we all listen and obey him. And that's not the case. Uh, the, in fact, the uh, State of the Union was for the vast majority, uh, for the first half of the United States history, was just basically a letter written by the president to Congress. It wasn't a speech. I believe the speech part came in with Woodrow Wilson, if I'm not mistaken. And so I just, I don't like it. There's never anything of substance there. It should be a, a letter that is capped at 500 words, uh, and we can all move on with our lives. And now on to international news, and we are again talking about Ukraine. I know we have talked all about Ukraine for a long time now, but it really is the center of really all the news uh, recently. So uh, to remind you, Ukraine was invaded by Russia last week, and uh, it was a little bit of a surprise at how well the Ukrainians were fighting off the Russians. There was kind of a large uh, belief that the Russians were going to kind of quickly go in, depose the government, uh, Ukrainians would kind of uh, run or flee or at least not fight that hard, but that is exactly what did not happen. The Ukrainians have been tough, they have been defensive, they have fought, and they still have control of the country, which is a pretty big deal. In fact, not just control of the country, but reports are that they still have control over the air, which is really remarkable considering that that was supposed to be kind of the first thing that, that went, is they were supposed, the Russians were supposed to come in, swoop in, and grab a kind of superiority over the air, which would m give them an advantage that would make the rest of the invasion easier, and that doesn't seem to have happened at all. In response to the invasion, as we talked last week, uh, the United States and other Western countries had uh, opened uh, economic sanctions or enforced economic sanctions on Russia. And I mentioned how the sanctions were a good first step, but really there needed to be a little bit more done. And I mentioned in particular uh, disconnecting Russia uh, from SWIFT. Uh, and the energy and ta targeting the in energy market. And the last week has seen a huge response in terms of sanctions from really the entire world. So 
the uh, you, the uh, United States, along with NATO and all sorts of other countries across the globe, did in fact disconnect Russia from SWIFT. And so what SWIFT is, is I, I briefly mentioned it last week, but essentially what SWIFT does is when uh, you uh, are, say you're a company in New York, you go to your bank and you send, uh, you're sending money to a company in another city in the world. So you're sending from New York to, we'll say, Paris. Well, when you send that, when you do that transaction, the bank, the branch, the specific branch has a particular number or code that it sends to the bank that of the uh, the branch that you're sending to it and that you're sending the money to in Paris. And so what that does, what that code does, is it doesn't transfer any money, but it communicates, it's a message that tells that bank in Paris to credit the account of the company that you're sending money to. So it is the lifeline, the lifeblood of international trade because anytime a business is buying anything from another country, they they have to use SWIFT. And so disconnecting Russia from SWIFT was huge because it basically disconnects Russia from international finance whatsoever because uh, the SWIFT system is used, like I mentioned last week, by 11,000 uh, banks in 200 plus countries. It is the lifeline of international trade. So that disconnected Russia from the world economically. Then, in another remarkable step in terms of sanctions, the uh, the rest of the world has come together, united, and has uh, gotten has uh, has put sanctions on the central bank of uh, of Russia, the central bank reserves. And so, what this is is in Russia, their central bank bank has assets in different. Uh, currencies. So for example, Russia may have, you know, 200 billion dollars uh, worth of American dollars. They may have, you know, 300 billion dollars worth of euros and and they have all of these assets in foreign currencies. And so usually what happens is that foreign currency isn't held within the borders of Russia. Rather, it is basically an IOU from the bank, from the bank, the central bank in, let's say, the United States. So the central bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, is telling the Russian central bank, hey, we owe you $200 billion. So it's not the, the bank in Russia doesn't actually have possession of it. Okay, so what these uh, sanctions uh, does is it prevents Russia from accessing those dollars. So essentially, the United States Federal Reserve is saying, actually, we have these $200 billion worth of IOUs, but you can't, we're not going to give it to you. Okay, we're not going to give you any of that, and you're not going to have access to any of that. And then uh, the Euro, the European uh, Union did the same thing uh, with the Euro. And so it and so why this is a big deal is because what central banks typically do with those foreign foreign currencies is they will uh, say the Russian uh, ruble is dropping in price. Uh, in in order to ensure it doesn't drop too low, uh, the Russian central central bank can spend dollars that they have in their central bank reserves and buy the ruble, which kind of uh, softens the blow a little bit. It prevents the ruble from dropping so low. So they'll use a foreign currency to buy their own currency to kind of prop up the price a little bit. Well, without those without access to those assets, because the countries around the world have prevented Russia from having access to those assets, 
they are unable to basically back up the ruble at all, which has led to the Russian ruble just absolutely tanking in price. It has dropped, it was down one point over 40%. It is just drastic in terms of economic damage that it is going to cause to Russia. This will almost surely lead to some sort of hyperinflation in the Russian economy. This will also, uh, with the fact that they are cut off from international trade through sanctioning of uh, removal from SWIFT, uh, the Russian economy is going to freefall. And so what Russia has done in response is they have kept its stock market closed and they aren't letting foreign companies divest from Russian holdings. So as these sanctions have gone out, these companies are kind of forced to sell a lot of their investments in the Russian uh, economy or Russian companies. So if a Russian bank is sanctioned, uh, there's you know, the United States uh, banks or uh, investment firms or whatever can't invest in those banks, so they have to sell those those uh, holdings. Well, the Russian government is not letting them sell. They're not letting anyone in Russia buy those investments. And so that is huge in terms of long-term investment because who, what company, what country is going to do business in Russia ever again if they are just basically left holding the bag because they can't divest from these Russia holdings. So this is not just right now that there's going to be economic damage, but this is laying the groundwork for economic damage in Russia for a long time coming. Also, what's interesting is that the energy sector hasn't been focused on yet in terms of sanctions, but energy companies within the energy sector have voluntarily pulled out of investments in Russia, which is pretty remarkable. And it's on top of that, they are ref almost refusing to buy oil. So Russian oil was trading at a significant discount to other oil and was still struggling to buy uh, to find buyers. So at one point it was down like $20 a barrel cheaper than the rest of the world and yet no one was buying it because they didn't want to have their name associated with buying Russian oil or funding the Russian government. So this is energy companies voluntarily doing this, not economic sanctions, which is a remarkable thing and uh, and. Even companies like Apple have pulled uh, apps from uh, Russia. Uh, YouTube has blocked Russian Times and different uh, Russian media sites. Uh, Apple Maps uh, has re removed itself from... I mean, just so many companies are willingly pulling out of Russia, which is just going to increase the economic damage done in Russia. This response, like I mentioned, has been just bewildering. It's been a good response. I think it's a great response, actually. But it was it is completely unexpected in my in my eyes I, and in a lot of people's eyes. No one was really expecting this kind of unified, aggressive response in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They were expecting some sanctions, but this has been broad, and this has really been one of the craziest uh, weeks in terms of the economic markets in general. Now, in terms of the war itself, uh, Russia has turned more aggressive in its uh, war efforts and have begun to have, have hit uh, civilian areas and seem to be targeting civilian areas, which is a really, which are essentially war crimes. There's video after video of schools being hit and apartment buildings being hit in these great, in these cities. And the idea is to basically make the Ukrainians, uh, 
submit, make them uh, desperate uh, and call for their government to submit by in- inflicting so much damage. And this is remarkable, especially because if Russia wants to occupy Ukraine, then they're going to, at this point, occupy a destroyed country with not much, much in it. Um, there was a brief worry uh, on Thursday night about a fire at a nuclear plant in Ukraine. Uh, that nuclear plant was, was being shelled by Russia. There was a fire that broke out, and there was kind of a, a huge alarm, international alarm, that, that could dam- that could really uh, cause a nuclear reaction or explosion or leak or whatever to occur. Um, that was a huge concern, uh, but it turns out that that worry d- did not come to fruition. And uh, from what I can tell from the nuclear experts that have uh, come out and discussed it, that it was never really that likely to lead to anything, but there was a kind of momentary panic th- there for a little bit. And just a couple other thoughts about this. So I'm not really worried right now about NATO getting involved. Uh, I don't think Russia is going to continue to uh, and aggressively uh, attack or uh, provoke any NATO countries right now simply because if they're so focused on Ukraine and it's gone this poorly for them, they really can't pivot and also fight a war against NATO. So it would be just, I mean, who knows? It is Vladimir Putin, but I I mean, there's just no way Russia could sustain a full invasion of Ukraine and pivot away from uh, Ukraine and focus on a NATO, a lot, uh, a unified NATO, as we see that this has been a remarkably unified NATO so far. Uh, There's just no way that they would be able to sustain those two efforts. And one more thing is that uh, China is absolutely taking note of this response, particularly the response of the domination of the dollar in, in the international order. So th- the reason why Russia is so isolated is because they essentially cannot buy or sell anything, not just because they're disconnected from SWIFT, but also because they don't have access to any American dollars and they can't get access to any American dollars. Okay, And the American dollars is the world currency. Okay, So China, I, I have to imagine, is taking note of this, and they've already been drawing down on their uh, U.S. dollar reserves. And I think what this has done, this response has done, is I think it's made China reconsider any potential aggression towards Taiwan. And because they know they could suffer economically. And if they do so, they're going to prepare for these kind of sanctions ahead of time. So these sanctions that we've implemented right now in Russia they aren't going to be uh, as effective against a Chinese uh, aggression towards Taiwan because they will prepare for this kind of uh, economic sanctions ahead of time and will, in that way, lessen the impact of them. So that's something to keep an eye on if that ever happens. And finally, now time for the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, where you can subscribe to and read on substack.com. So this week I talked about uh, kind of... I didn't really know what to talk about, like I mentioned in the newsletter, um, but I, because I've been so focused on Ukraine this entire week, and there's been so much written about it that I didn't feel like there was much I could offer. So I kind of, instead of talking specifically about U- Ukraine and Russia, I talked more about what I have learned or what uh, it has made me think about. And the one of the main things that it has made me think about is it has reminded me why I, I am a conservative. Okay? And by conservative, I don't mean that I hold certain policy positions, though in some cases I do. What I mean, though, is that there's some fundamental assumptions that I have about how the world operates and how human beings operate that lead me to see the world and then uh, 
operate in the world in a certain way, to make decisions and uh, think about policy in certain ways because of those assumptions that I hold. And there's two of, of those assumptions that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has just kind of reminded me of. And the first one is just that the, the importance of the restraint on power. So I look at Putin and I see someone who is completely and totally in charge of the Russian government. He has all of the power in Russia. He's consolidated that power over the last 20 plus years. And now with that power, he is invading another country. He is trying to increase his power. And so the only way that Putin can do that is because he has consolidated power so much. Okay, if power were restricted, limited, fragmented across Russia and across the Russian governmental system, then it would be impossible to do something that so many Russians are against, right? So we see thousands of Russians protesting in the streets, okay? But even, and even if Russians wanted this, okay, we see the consequences of even if Russians want this, uh, consolidating power into one entity. So this is why I'm so particular and I uh, care so much about the limits we've placed, the constitutional limits we have on power, in particular separation of powers, right? That's why I hate the administrative state and the regulatory state that we have because it, it, it gets in the way and it blurs these lines between the separate powers uh, and the separate branches that we have. Have. So, you know, instead of the legislative branch being where laws are created, we have uh, the, uh, the Congress has passed that off to the executive branch of uh, these administrative agencies that now have the force of law and they make regulation that or have the force of law. And then the executive branch in which they operate within then uh, execute the laws. And it's just a consolidation of power within the executive branch. And I think that's unhealthy. And I think uh, a core fundamental assumption of conservatives is they're skeptical of power because they understand that power can be used poorly uh, because humans are flawed. Also, uh, the other fundamental assumption to remind me is the importance of gra uh, gratefulness and the reality that I have the capacity to be grateful because I don't, I'm not constantly looking for things to fix because I am in, I, I'm searching for this perfect world or this utopia or this ideal. I, 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 conservatives typically do not think that a perfect world is possible, that they have to take the world as it is. And because of that, uh, I don't, I just don't feel the need to constantly look for things to change or look for things to improve. That's not to say there isn't any, and that's not to say that I'd be against improving things. But it, I, I really do think that just because I don't see uh, the uh, a utopia or perfect world as a possibility, I'm just quicker to be grateful for things that I have, even things like I mentioned, like my uh, people who hate me or people that uh, disagree with everything I say, that call me racist, call me misogynist, call me all those things, because they can call me those all they want. But that is better than what is happening in Ukraine. That is better than being, uh, you know, hit by rockets and having to split from your family and send them across the border and go back and fight. And just the life of the Ukrainians right now is awful. And I would, I'm so grateful for the life we have here, even though that it's frustrating at times, but it's nothing compared to that. And with that, that is the end of the podcast this week. Thank you for joining me. Please like, subscribe, share, and do all of that so that this podcast can go far and wide. And I hope that you'll join again next week.